0: We are back. We are just talking about COVID, and I think we need to talk more about the saga of this um, pandemic. There's a several-page piece in the current issue of The Economist addressing the issue of how COVID got started. Last year, when we were talking about uh, the then-new epidemic sweeping around the globe, we, we uh, echoed the position of many that it seemed unlikely that there was a lab accident in, in Wuhan at the Wuhan Institute of Virology that was responsible for the start of this. Uh, this terrible problem. But th- that still may be the case. But it-, it turns out that, you know, the origins of this disease, which should be getting much clearer by now, are remaining murky. Said The Economist, under the headline, Origins of COVID-19, putting it all together, the subheadline was, there has not yet been a proper investigation into the origins of COVID-19. Better late than never. The article starts by quoting a a comment on a Danish television documentary about this, wherein Peter Ben Embarek, an expert on food security and zoonotic diseases, cast a doubt on the conclusions of the joint study, so-called, on the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic that was carried out earlier this year under the auspices of the World Health Organization. Dr. Ben Embarek was a senior WHO figure who went to China as part of that study. In March The study reported that it was, quote, "...extremely unlikely," unquote, that the virus had been released in a laboratory accident. Dr. Ben Ambrek revealed that this conclusion did not come from a balanced assessment of all the relevant evidence, but from a steadfast refusal by the Chinese members of the joint study to support anything stronger. Indeed, they only allowed even that minimal assessment on the condition that the report did not call for further investigation into the question. He also pointed out that the idea that the point of spillover was someone collecting bat samples for research purposes belongs in the likely basket, along with other human interactions with wild bats. Problems in the joint study had long been clear. Within the WHO, one source described it as riddled with compromises and sloppiness. The WHO's general director was uneasy about the way it was carried out. He pushed back at the marginalization of the lab Leak hypothesis, particularly when the final report was released in March. He has since called for further investigations into it as well as other possibilities. Magazine notes the pandemic's death toll stands at nine to eighteen million, according to models which the economists had built on the basis of excess mortality reports and other indicators. Which they added, the question of how it started matters both for the relatives of the dead and for those who wish to prevent such an outbreak happening again. China's efforts to stop the world from answering are both shabby and, to an extent, self-defeating. The more the truth seems hidden, the more it seems suspicious. Earnest calls for an international investigation of the origins of COVID began in April 2020, voiced most clearly by Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister of Australia. The next month, the World Health Assembly, the gathering of government representatives who serves as the WHO's decision-making body, passed a notion calling for a study into the origins of the pandemic. That in order to be acceptable to China, which had reacted furiously to Mr. Morrison's original suggestion, the work was set up as a joint research project between two teams of scientists, one Chinese, one international. The terms of reference, which were subsequently negotiated behind closed doors, allowed Chinese hosts to frame the joint study's work in a way which best suited them. The study was set up built on pre-existing Chinese research not to delve into unvetted data. Anyway, when the international team got into China finally in January of this year, the data about the first reported COVID cases, those from December of 2019, were subject of friction between the international and Chinese observers. The Chinese reported 174 such cases, but would not share the underlying data on which those reports were based. The authorities cited. Concerns over citizens' privacy. Yeah, that's always a big issue with the Chinese government. Uh, The magazine noted it it could have been, you know, anonymized. Elsewhere, the team appears to have been knowingly misled. Take, for example, the animal trade, the live animal trade at the Hunan Seafood and Wildlife Market, which is a site associated with a number of the earliest recorded cases of COVID-19. In its final report, the study group took at face value claims there was no credible evidence that live mammals were sold there in 2019. And there's plenty of evidence that that's BS. Anyway, last May 26, Joe Biden ordered America's intelligence services to report on the pandemic's origins in 90 days, which, well, that would have been a couple days ago. Let's hope that sees the light of day. Anyway, suffice it to say that there is more data and investigation that's needed on this. Uh, The Economist says that China clearly does not want lab leaks investigated, but that does not mean that it knows what happened. It is also being misleading about the Hunan market denying access to early case data and obfuscating the various other non-lab leak specific ways. Most obvious explanation is that it does not really want any definitive answer to the question. An unsanitary market, a reckless bat catcher, or a helpless spelunker would not be as bad in terms of blame, as a source in the government laboratory. But any definitive answer to the origin question probably leaves China looking bad, unless it can find a way to blame someone else. To that end, China has called for investigations of Fort Detrick in Maryland, historically the home of America's bioweapons research. Chinese state media regularly publish speculations about its involvement. Anyway, stick around. There's going to be more on this, uh, on this story to come, maybe with that report in the next couple days. Here's another little item of not such good news regarding COVID. Apparently, a third of the common white-tailed deer in at least four states have been exposed to the coronavirus, according to a new federal study. There's no evidence the deer suffered an infection, but the presence of antibodies could mean they successfully fought off a virus. These findings add to concerns that the virus could become established in a common animal species, creating a reservoir from which it could theoretically jump back into humans. Of course, I have to, you know, confess, I'm, I'm very skeptical about all the data related to antibodies uh, in the bloodstream. Um, there are other coronaviruses which we commonly get, and I've suspected all along that we're seeing a lot of false positives uh, from people that are infected with other coronaviruses that are being, you know, blamed on SARS-CoV-2. second round of, of COVID uh, around the world is certainly raising hell with everyone I know's travel plans. Phone calls from people, people that were planning to go to Europe or planning to go to Africa, that are now saying, oh, "What should I do? I don't know." And well, I don't know either. There's a lot of evidence suggesting that if you actually had COVID, you are even in better immunity shape than those who have been fully vaccinated. Uh, I'm in a position of having had the disease and then having two shots afterwards. Uh, I, I guess that makes me super immune. But the data is suggesting perhaps that uh, the immunity is wearing off sooner than we might have hoped. Perhaps in a matter of months, but it's just, it's too early to tell. And like, like pretty much everything in medicine, it's kind of a percentages uh, game. Risks are going to remain. How much risk are you comfortable with? I think a lot of nations are having to give uh, their policies a rethink. Australia is currently experiencing a mild outbreak, which has got Sydney locked down. I was surprised to read that the Australians have a, a rather low rate of vaccination. They've been counting on the fact that they can keep it out, keep it out at the border. But The fact of the matter is, sooner or later, that's going to rupture, and cases are going to enter the country. Same with New Zealand. New Zealand's been isolated from the rest of the world, which which you can do if you're an island nation, but sooner or later, people are going to show up with coronavirus. It's not going to go away, no matter what Donald Trump said. The grim reality is, is as the virus continues to work its way through the human population, those who are susceptible to it will die. The reasons for this are very completely understood. The reasons for this are very incompletely understood, but it is the fact that some people are unusually susceptible and succumb. Eventually, those people being eliminated from the gene pool will mean that those people left on Earth will be more relatively resistant. And eventually, COVID-19 may become yet another coronavirus that just gives you a cold. But will that co-evolutionary process take place over two or three years or over 70 or 80 years? Hard to say. In fact, pretty much impossible to say. All right, we're looking rather desperately here for some good news. And I, and I guess the fact that the EPA has finally elected to block uh, the use of chlorp- chlorpyrifos on food is, is, is good. Marketed under the uh, brand name Durban. Uh, which is, I think, the most prominent among the chlorpyrifos type organophosphate nerve gases that we use as pesticides. Well, we're all going to be a little bit safer. Did a, did a little look on the internet about uh, chlorpyrifos type uh, pesticides, and it noted that they were they were they were being touted because they broke down so much faster in the environment than other organophosphates. <laughs> and then the, the, the less than reassuring numbers were that yeah, it breaks the half life is like thirty to sixty days. Now, I don't know basic chemistry. I'm pretty sure that oil and water still don't mix and that organophosphates are basically, uh, well, an organic compound, you know, in the oil family, you might say. So if you're spraying, there's ban on your corn, your soybeans, your apples, your broccoli, your asparagus, your other produce, and then it's sent off to market. How much of it do you suppose is left I know that we have agencies in the state of California, as we do all across the United States, that are supposed to test for pesticide residues and, you know, assure you if it's safe. And I don't know much about these laboratories, but I do know that a guy that worked in them told me back when I was in college that when they tested the fruit and vegetables and they came back positive, his boss would instruct him to test it again. And if it came up positive again, he was told, test it again. Now, apparently, several years ago, there was a court decision that was going to ban the use of this pesticides under various environmental regulations. It was immediately appealed by the Trump administration. And of course, as, as I read this, uh, this story from the New York Times about this ban of chlorpyrifos, it does note the new rule will take effect in six months. And how about this little item from the story? Labor and environmental advocacy groups estimate the decision will eliminate more than 90% of chlorpyrifos use in the country. Well, if you're banning the use of it, how is it you still retain 10 percent of its use in the country? I don't understand. Mr. McMillan astutely points out that they're banning its use on food. Maybe that 10 percent is, you know, for use in killing termites. I don't know. And this, unfortunately, leads us into a cover story from New Scientist magazine from last month about um, Earth's chemical crisis. Mr. McMillan, Yes, yes, I admit we're going from bad to worse, but that's the nature of today's program. The subheadline, to the piece on Earth's chemical crisis is Synthetic pollutants flooding ecosystems are a forgotten environmental emergency and we're struggling even to grasp the scale of the problem. Article by Graham Lawton. The article starts by noting that the, the setting for the 2008 D- Disney Pixar movie Wall-E was the 29th century where the Earth was basically a giant dump. says Lawton. But it may come close to reality if we don't clean up our act. We can find toxic metals in the Himalayan peaks, plastic fibers in the deepest reaches of the ocean, and it contends that air pollution is killing more people than the current pandemic. A, A statistic I would question, but I do wonder about notes the piece back when Wally was made pollution and waste were near the top of the environmental agenda at the 2002 earth summit in south africa global leaders agreed to minimize the environmental and health effects of chemical pollution perhaps the most insidious and problematic category they set a deadline of 2020 which the magazine notes spoiler alert we missed it piece notes that pollution as a waste product of our economic activities is as old as civilization itself Ice cores from Greenland contain traces of lead and copper from the ore smelting that took place in Bronze Age Europe. The first synthetic chemicals, ones that don't exist in nature, were created in the mid-19th century. But as with most planet-trashing human activities, the rate at which we created new pollutants and dumped our waste products into the environment began to rise exponentially after the Second World War. In a 70-year-old ongoing bender that has been called the Great Acceleration. In 1950, global production of plastics was 1.5 million tons. 1.5, 1950. In 2017, it was 350 million tons. In 2050, it is forecast to reach, are you ready for this, 2 billion tons. Chemical industry output in developing economies increased more than sixfold between 2000 and 2010, said the U.N. report, which I'm sure economists all over the world took a look at and went, oh, my God, that's great. That's wonderful. We have no way of measuring the bad effects of any of this, but we can tell you how much money is being made. And boy, this looks good. According to the International Council of Chemical Associations, the ICCA, a trade body. 95% of goods rely on some form of industrial chemical process in their manufacture. And the piece notes, at every stage in their life cycles, synthetic chemicals can and do escape into the wild, potentially poisoning the environment, wildlife, and us. The Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich said they are everywhere. The most visible manifestation is plastic waste, but that is the tip of a huge iceberg said Jean Wang at the Institute. We release a lot of chemicals, but we really don't check them first. Pinning toxic effects on any one substance or group of substances is often difficult, but many chemicals in widespread use are known or suspected to be toxic to humans and wildlife. They include substances such as polychlorinated biphenyls, PCBs, a class of industrial coolants and lubricants, which can be powerful disruptors of the endocrine system if ingested, and some per- and polyfluoroalkyl alkyl substances, PFASs, used principally to make stain-repellent coatings. One particularly stark, well-documented example is the is population of killer whales off the west coast of UK. It's failed to reproduce. For almost thirty years and appears doomed to extinction. One mature female washed up dead in the shoreline of the Scottish Island in 2016 was found to have an undeveloped uterus and PCB levels a hundred times the toxicity threshold for marine mammals. Paul Jepson at the Zoological Society of London said these are astronomical numbers. And then there's pesticides. We were just talking about a minute ago. Article notes that in 1962, Rachel Carson drew the world's attention to the pestis to the toxicity of pesticides in her book, Silent Spring. Back then, the WHO estimated that about a million tons of pesticides were being used annually. That figure is now six times higher. Chemicals designed to kill or disable undesirable organisms have often turned out to be more widely toxic. A list of more than 300 highly hazardous pesticides is maintained by the Global Pesticides Action Network. Earlier this year, it called for an urgent phase-out of these chemicals by 2030. And if I can take a pause from the article for a moment to note that I was relieved to hear in my backyard two nights ago, crickets, several crickets. Now, the sound of crickets used to be just part of a summer night here in California where I live. And when I realized a month or so ago that there were no crickets, I was disturbed and started to ask other people about this. And yes, this idea of an insect apocalypse is real. Yes, we've talked at great length on this program about bees and how bees are suffering, but it turns out it isn't just bees. Now, the Europeans took a look at neonicotinoids. the fact, they were having on bees and decided to go with a near total ban, which was agreed to in 2018. I don't think the jury is yet in on what effect that is having, but there's a lot of people out there in the bee industry that say, just knock it off. You know, knock off this idea that we don't know what's causing it. It's the neonicotinoids. The EU agreed to ban neonicotinoid pesticides back in 2018. It's, I don't think the jury's in yet on what effect that is having on bees. But the fact of the matter is, spraying poisons on your food, it just can't be a good idea. We spray poisons on food so there will be no insect contamination. You can eat insects! We talked about this a while back on the show. So yeah, I guess we need to all start buying organic produce. But I was horrified to realize when you go to the nursery and you take a plant home, it may have been pretreated treated to make sure that bugs weren't eating it when they were trying to sell it to you, the customer. So yes, you may be bringing home poisonous plants to put in your yard. And there's the issue of environmentally persistent pharmaceuticals. I mean, anyone who's you know, drunk quite a bit of coffee knows that when it comes out, it's a peculiar aroma, shall we say. Something that is maybe not quite as, uh, pungent as uh, the familiar phenomenon of eating asparagus, but the truth is we pass out of our bodies a lot of what is uh, taken in, ingested, in the way of pharmaceuticals. India got a rude shock a few decades back when uh, veterinarians were using the drug diclofenac as an anti-inflammatory, I guess, in a lot of the cows of India. It turned out that it uh, stuck around in dead cows, and when vultures went to dispose of the dead cows, it killed them dead. Vultures apparently have been virtually wiped out on the Indian subcontinent. Then there's the question of heavy metal toxicity. And here's the disturbing fact that there's no universally accepted definition of a heavy metal. But most lists include lead, mercury, chromium, arsenic, and cadmium. All of them can be toxic in certain forms and are widely used in industry and are released by by the combustion of fossil fuels. Anyway, this is a gigantic, epic problem, and it needs to get addressed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll see how that goes, but it it, it it does need to be addressed. We need to ban a few things, even if it appears that, you know, in the short term, we're going to suffer economically. Sometimes there are simple solutions. It was discovered not so long ago that um, if you basically run sewage and other contaminants through swampland, it does a wonderful job of cleaning up the wastewater. All of them bacteria and fungi that are present in this ecosystem uh, just, you know, eat some of our pollutants for lunch. Of course, I'm not sure how well that's going to turn out since a lot of these things were not known in nature up till the mid-18th century, 19th century. Anyway, I must confess to some degree of pessimism in seeing that we're going to have to take on the petrochemical industry on a lot of this, the same people that are giving us global warming. Sometimes, as I'm talking to the microphone and look at Miss and I just want to throw my hands up in the air and go, Oh my God, what can we do here? I mean, all this looks so grim, but I guess the first step in doing something about it is facing the fact that there's a problem. And of course, there's lots of people out there trying to reassure you through misinformation that this really is being overblown and this really isn't a big deal. And we really can continue on our way with business as usual. But the reality is we can't. But tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. This must be done on a timely basis. We don't have forever to take action. I don't know how many years ago it was on this program we spoke to John Stauber, the author of Toxic Sludge is good for you, subtitled Lies, Damn Lies and the Public Relations Industry, which explained how it was that uh, the Spinmeisters were hard at work convincing all of us that this stuff really wasn't as bad. I look at the, at the copyright page. It was 1995. This is one of these instances where we tracked down an author long after the book was out. But he did give us a, a great interview, and we recommend you check it out. Among our archives at radioparallax.com. It makes me sad to contemplate that you can probably read this book today and find that it is still as relevant as it was when it was written 25 years ago. One reason this is all a problem is something I'm going to pull out of chapter three from Toxic Sledge is Good for You. It's a quote at the, at the header of, of the chapter, quote from Warren Buffett, who was described as once being R.J. Reynolds' largest shareholder. The quote is, I could tell you why I like the cigarette business. It costs a penny to make. It sells for a dollar. It's addictive. And there's fantastic brand loyalty. Well, Warren is telling it like it is. Pretty much everybody in the PR industry from, you know, even before they were writing about Toxic Sludge being good for you, which came from a Tom Tomorrow cartoon, by the way. And you know what? I'm going to recycle that that four-panel Tom Tomorrow cartoon from the 90s. First panel is, it's time for yet another look at how the news works. Step one, a corporation which has been caught engaging in some illegal or Unethical act writes, hires a public relations firm. Two corporate dudes are speaking. The first one says, People are upset because we've been dumping toxic sludge into the water supply. His companion says, Well, by the time we're through, they'll thank you for it. Second panel, step two. The PR firm proceeds to manipulate public opinion in a variety of devious, underhanded ways, such as anonymously planting op ed pieces in the nation's newspaper. Shows an op ed by Joe Pundit saying, What's so bad about toxic sludge? third panel, as well as sending out slickly produced video news releases, which many cash-strapped local news departments air virtually unedited, giving corporate propaganda the appearance of objective reporting. Shows a guy holding up a glass with, like, bubbles coming out of the top of it, saying, and so you see, toxic sludge is actually quite good for you. And the final panel is step three. Public opinion is swayed by this onslaught of media manipulation masquerading as news, since as PR firms well understand, any lie repeated often enough becomes true. Shows a couple women saying, I can't imagine why we ever worried about toxic sludge. Man's going, yes, how silly we were. And in my right hand, I hold a picture of Mount Shasta. The people that were telling us that, uh, you know, toxic sludge isn't so bad, the same, they took their, the playbook was tobacco. They set up a tobacco institute that would dispute every finding that showed that cigarette smoking wasn't such a good thing for human health. They hired phony baloney researchers to do phony baloney research. And then PR people took over. The same exact floor plan, the same exact plan of attack has been used to combat the notion that global warming is real. We better do something about it. We were told that we may see some real problems with the world environment by the year 2100. But looking at Mount Shasta and seeing that it is devoid of snow, for the first time in recorded history, no snowpack on Mount Shasta. I am stunned and depressed. As Mr. Mill points out, it doesn't even look like Mount Shasta. Now, I don't know that we know that the glaciers that formerly clung to the slopes of Mount Shasta go back to the last ice age, but it was always, as far as I understand, assumed that they did. Certainly by the time that the white people arrived here in California and took a look at Mount Shasta, they could see that it had snow on it and has always had snow on it until this summer. A friend of mine who lives up near Dunsmuir told me uh, about a month or two ago that, hey, yeah, that sn- snow's pretty much gone off Mount Shasta. And I'm like, you're kidding. But he wasn't. It is. Anyway, a friend of mine posted this photograph on his Facebook page and one of his friends said, not to sound crazy, That's a pretty stark indicator of agricultural collapse in the valley that grows 50% of the vegetables, fruits, and nuts in the United States. A topic that I'd like to address next, except we're out of time. And just as an aside to this, uh, there is a company that manufactures uh, drinking water. Pretty good drinking water. There's a bottling plant up near Mount Shasta. I think its purity is probably commendable. I assume that it is. It tastes good, so I don't mind paying for it. But I noticed uh, as of... I don't know, six months ago, that sometimes when you bought a bottle of it, it tasted kind of like tap water. I don't know, maybe it's because we've eliminated melted snow from the process. Not sure. Anyway, this program was produced by Edward McMillan. Listen to Radio Parallax. I'm your somewhat discouraged host, Douglas Everett. But I guess Mr. McMillan, we could at least go out with some up outro music. (laughs) Music Skies are gonna clear up, put on a happy face. Brush off the clouds and cheer up, put on a happy face. Take off the gloomy mask of tragedy, it's not your style. You look so good that you'll be glad you decided to smile. Pick out a pleasant outlook, stick out that noble chin.